It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing at King's Cross Station, two roads south of where Glyndor Michael's heroic afterlife began, one road north of the sad-faced killer's hotel, a few feet from where the Camden Ripper picked up sex workers, and one road east of the man who mumbled. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Below King's Cross sits a subsurface station which connects the Piccadilly, Northern, Victoria, Circle, Bakerloo, Hammersmith and City and the Metropolitan Lines. As one of the busiest tube stations in Europe, more than 150,000 people a day pass through this station. For some, it's part of their commute or a place of work. And for others, it's a place to stay dry and to beg for change. King's Cross is a haven for the homeless. Here you'll see such sad sights as a family of haggard refugees huddled in a rain-sodden doorway, a ragged mess dressed in nothing but a soiled duvet, a brutally honest alcoholic who says, Honestly, mate, I just want to get pissed. And my personal favourite, the red-headed man with the imaginative ploy who once said to me, I'm saving up for a boob job, ain't I? Every one of them has a tragic tale to tell. Whether a life of hardship, struggle, addiction or abuse. Some are criminals, some are heroes, some are lost, and others never want to be found. We all make assumptions in the few seconds it takes to apologetically tap our pockets or to toss them a few coins simply to feel better about ourselves. But no one really wants to get involved, and that's the problem. On Saturday the 30th of July 1965, at 10.50am, on the westbound metropolitan line of King's Cross tube station, two men from very different worlds met for the very first time. Their interaction was brief, their words exchanged were few, and their lives need never have crossed. And yet for reasons outside of their control, it did, and it changed both of their lives forever. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 168, The Outcast. It was a day which began, for both men, like any other. Lawrence Francis Gwither was a 44-year-old bachelor who lived a good life in a small lodging at nearby 23 Granville Square. As a hard-working warehouse porter, he did his job, he paid his taxes, and he kept out of trouble. He was tall and slim, 
but sturdy, and having suffered with epilepsy since childhood, he'd been unable to enlist as a wartime soldier. But he did his duty for king and country as a messenger. Described as a quiet, thoughtful man who was no bother to anyone, he kept himself to himself, but he wasn't afraid to speak up if he felt that something was wrong. That morning, at 10.30 a.m., Lawrence began his walk to work, heading one mile north to King's Cross Station. In contrast, according to his extensive criminal record, John Ritchie was a 42-year-old vagabond with a long history of drunkenness, theft and violent assault. Having been unable to hold down even the most menial of jobs since his teens, he hadn't worked a day in the last seven years. And living in a hostel funded by taxpayers, he leached off the system and squandered his benefits on booze. That morning, having already sunk two bottles of wine, a quart of cider and a hip flask of whiskey, being broke, John stumbled onto the Victoria Line at Walthamstow. Having arrogantly leapt the barrier and barked abuse at the ticket inspector, this shambling mess rode the tube for free and accosted every commuter for cash. As this scruffy ne'er-do-well staggered about, reeking of piss. As on his shoulder and sleeve, a splash of last night's puke slowly congealed. In court, he couldn't account for how he got there, as being in an alcoholic haze of anger and hate. He hated these bastards and everything about them. And yet the irony was, he needed their money. At 10am, eyewitnesses report seeing John in a tunnel to the side of the ticket hall at King's Cross tube station. Sitting slumped, although sloshed, he begged for change by playing his mouth organ. For the station staff, John was a habitual pest. But momentarily lost in his music, he wasn't being abusive. At 10.45 a.m., Lawrence entered the main hall. He purchased a ticket. He went through the turnstile, and he turned right into the tunnel towards the Metropolitan Line. A few feet behind him was Eric Mueller-Arsman, a 40-year-old planning officer who would state, My attention was drawn to a scruffy man playing a mouth organ. As I passed him, he kept playing but he held out his hand for money. I carried on by, as we all do, and said, not now, not another, time. another time, or something like that. That was the first time that Lawrence and John had met. They didn't speak nor interact. At 10.46 a.m., Lawrence descended the Whitestone stairs, turned left onto the westbound Metropolitan Line platform, and stood near the mouth of the tunnel alongside 30 other people. The westbound train is about to depart Farrington and will arrive in four minutes. Eric continued, A few minutes later, the man had made his way onto the platform. He was swaying about, I thought he was either off his head or simple. I saw him go to two youngsters sitting on a seat. Being schoolboys and intimidated by the rambling drunk, one of them gave him a penny. But with a penny of the boy's pocket money, not enough to buy booze, John held his hand out for more. Hugh Ferry a 51-year-old interior decorator told the court, Another man told the mouth organ player he should not be begging. 
others would clarify that what Lawrence had said was, Do your begging elsewhere. From the second they had first met, to this final interaction, Lawrence and John's encounter lasted no longer than three minutes, and ten words at best. They had made eye contact. There were no raised voices. Lawrence's words were neither abusive nor threatening. And not wanting to cause a scene, the warehouse porter calmly moved a third of the way down the platform, away from John. The next westbound Hammersmith and City Line train will be arriving in two minutes. At 10.48am, being six hours into his shift manoeuvring the 184 from Whitechapel to Hammersmith, Albert Copeland had left Farringdon on time. Driving the six-car train at 40 miles an hour through the tunnels, although it would slow to 25 miles an hour as it approached the platform, even if the emergency brake is pulled in time, it would still take a few hundred feet for this 200-ton train to come to a stop. Standing three feet from the platform edge, Lawrence was minding his own business. And to all who would witness what was about to be unleashed, it seemed as if the scruffy little vagrant was too. As his mouth organ parped a little ditty, and his filthy scratched hand reached out for change. He turned to the people on the seat and said something, pointing to the man who had just shrugged him off. He was making a nuisance of himself, passing remarks, and he appeared to be under the influence of drink. He seemed to be seeking their sympathy and carried on playing his mouth organ. Then he stopped and pointed to the man who was then standing on the edge of the platform. To many, it looked as if John was mocking him. But rightly so, Lawrence just ignored him. The Westbound train will be arriving in one minute. Whether what happened was fueled by anger or stupidity, with any rational thoughts clouded by a booze-filled haze. As the shambling mess of a man sidled up the platform, having accosted all and sundry, he stopped behind Lawrence. He came up behind him, and with his foot near his buttocks, he made a gesture as if he was going to push him. Lawrence didn't know this, he didn't see it, and he didn't feel it. But it was not a joke. Please stand back as the train is now approaching. At 10.50 a.m., as the westbound train hurtled through the pitch black tunnel into the blinding light of the platform, the drunk man gave his buttocks a violent shove towards the 630 volt electrified track. It was a heavy kick, and the man lurched forward. And although, being blessed with quick reflexes, having seen it all happen, Albert had pulled the emergency brake. But it was too late. I heard him strike the train. The chance of anyone surviving being struck by a 200-ton train at 25 miles an hour over a 630-volt track would be one chance in a million. But miracles do happen, as this was obviously not Lawrence's day to die. Later, he would tell the court, I felt a blow in the pit of my back. 
and this happened just as the train came out the tunnel. I fell forward and managed to turn. At the same time, I hit the side of the train. Having been kicked a split second too late, he had missed being smacked by the roaring train by inches or falling onto the track underneath the train's wheels. Instead, the right-hand side of his body hit the motorman's cab, and having bounced off the window, Lawrence was thrown back onto the platform. I don't know what happened, but I gathered my senses. And as Albert brought the tube train to a standstill, he was amazed not only to see that Lawrence was alive, but still standing. The only injuries to his body were a bruise to his palm, a cut to his little finger, and a ripped fingernail. With John Ritchie attempting to flee, the train driver and two witnesses grabbed him by the sleeve and frog-marched the stinky reprobate to the station inspector's office in the ticket hall. Kicking up a fuss and reeking of whiskey, as he unleashed the foulest of language, when Lawrence told PC Dugdale, This man tried to kill me. John admitted, Yeah, I did it. And I'll f- do a proper job if I go down for this. I'll kill the c- He's not going to touch me up. An alleged sexual assault that no one had seen. John Ritchie was taken to the Caledonian Road police station and charged with causing actual bodily harm. Tried at Clerkenwell Magistrates Court, the jury heard of his history as one of life's wastrels. Described as a scoundrel, a rogue and a vagabond, John Ritchie was nothing more than a recalcitrant and a drunk. Since the age of 19, he had spent 9 years, 10 months and 8 days of his 42 years in prison for a never-ending catalogue of crimes, such as robbery, theft, burglary and assaulting three policemen. Throughout his life, repeated attempts were made to improve his behaviour. With three years spent in corrective training and six months in a psychiatric hospital. But as a remorseless drunk who flouted bail and often broke probation, it was clear that he didn't care and was unwilling to change his ways. With the magistrate feeling that a charge of actual bodily harm was a sentence too lenient given what could have happened. The case was escalated to the Old Bailey on the charge of attempted murder. And that was it. There was nothing else to say. The evidence was watertight. The witnesses were clear. And although drunk at the time of the attack, John Ritchie would not dispute these events. The prosecution had put before the jury every reprehensible thing he had ever done in his life to paint him as a leech on society, which he would agree that he was. But he also felt that unfairly this was only one side of his life story and that there was more to him than just a criminal record. His was a history of hardship and maybe if he appealed to a sympathetic ear he wouldn't go to prison for life. In a letter to the Court of Appeal John wrote I've no wish to minimise the charges against me It was a wrong and foolish act, and I'm sincerely sorry. However, I feel that my case was badly defended, and the court was not informed as to my actual physical state at the time. This was what the jury did not hear. John Ritchie was born on the 30th of April 1922 in Paisley, Scotland as the second eldest of eight siblings in a small cramped lodging 
where every week they struggled to make ends meet. When asked, John's memory of his childhood was vague. As maybe he couldn't recall, or maybe he had chosen to forget. What he could remember was that his father was an angry, abusive drinker who was handy with his fists. Until the age of 14, John was educated at Abercorn Public School in Paisley, where he learned to read and write. As a short, slightly scrawny kid, although a chatty little fella, he gained a reputation as a bit of a scrapper. As the bigger bullies picked on this feisty lad at school, and then again, it would happen at home. Whether he was abandoned or fled in fear, being barely into his teens, he would lose almost all contact with his family. As far as he knew, his siblings had scattered, his mother had died of cancer, and his father was alive 11 years ago, although by now, it was likely that he had drunk himself to death. His first job was as a newspaper boy in Glasgow, making a pittance for long hours standing in the cold and wet. Determined to earn his own money and to stand on his own two feet, he slogged his guts out for two years and did himself proud. By 1938, age 16, he was training as an apprentice car mechanic. He was learning a trade. He lived in a rented lodging. He had food in his belly and a bright future ahead. Life was going well for John. Until the world changed everything. In August 1939, under orders to fight for king and country, 17-year-old John Ritchie was conscripted to fight as a rifleman in the Cameronian Rifles, seeing active service in the Middle East, Sicily and Italy. He was just a small, frightened kid, sent off to fight, to kill, and possibly to die in a foreign land of unspeakable horrors. Images it would be impossible to scrub from his memory once the blood had etched into his brain. With no outlet for his trauma, he drank. And the more death he saw, the more he drank. Until getting wasted was the only way to survive the moments when his eyes were open. Deep down, he was a good lad, and some say decent when he was sober. But when he drank, the drink unleashed his demons. On the 14th of May 1943 and the 4th of January 1946, Private John Ritchie was court-martialed for two cases of drunkenness and desertion and was sentenced to a total of 14 months in prison. During his desertion, he turned to crime. Being bound over for three years for robbery with violence, three months hard labor for stealing cigarettes, and six months for burglary and theft. He was discharged with ignominy from the Cameronian rifles, making him ineligible for veterans' benefits. Distance from his family, traumatized by the war, and denied the most basic of income he was owed, alcohol became his way to cope. With nothing of value in his life, John the Veteran became John the Vagrant. A shambling mess who drifted from town to town, causing a nuisance. His crimes were minor, 
March 48, Marleybone, three months for stealing 29 shillings. September 48, Clerkenwell, seven days for theft of an egg cup and a gravy boat. August 49, Glasgow, 90 days for drink driving. October 49, Glasgow, three months for the theft of cigarettes. May 50, Bow Street, assaulting a policeman. And June 50, three months for drink driving. On paper, when read out to a jury, this brief passage from his lengthy criminal record makes him seem like a selfish, remorseless thief. Only he wasn't. He was an addict. And he was trying to fight it. In 1951, as he had done many times before, John battled his demons and sobered up. From January 51 to July 52, he worked for eight months as a packer at Cowan de Groot in Holborn and 11 months as a machine operator at Babcox and Wilcox nearby. He was sober, polite, prompt and well-liked. After a decade in the wilderness, he had finally got his life back on track. Only of all his battles, drink was the most difficult demon to slay. In July 1952, after his fourth conviction for drink driving, John was sentenced to six months at Longgrove Mental Hospital where he would be detoxed under strict medical supervision. Every day was pain, and every night he screamed, as his torturous demons refused to let his adult brain be free. But he did it, and he was clean. In November 1952, he had found work as a handyman at Frederick Simmons in Holborn, and again, he got his life back on track. But as so often happens, having kept his criminal record a secret, as nobody wants to hire an ex-con, he lost his job, his lodging, and gripped with depression, he went back to the booze. His life continued this way through the 1950s and into the 1960s. He was in and out of prison, on and off of jobs, and back and forth from the bottle. Some days he was clean, other days he was sloshed. Some weeks he had a roof over his head, and others he slept shivering in a rain-soaked doorway. In prison, at least he was fed and dry. But regardless of his crimes, he was always a prisoner of his own body. From 1953 to 58, he barely worked a few weeks or few days as a packer in a factory. And being sacked from his last job as a kitchen porter in Margate, for the rest of his life, he would live off benefits of £4.17 shillings a week, which he squandered on drink news which would only have rankled any tax-paying jury. On the 11th of December 1964, John was released from HMP Dartmoor. He had been unemployed for seven years, a prisoner for ten, homeless for fifteen, and he had been battling alcoholism for almost quarter of a century. With a criminal record stretching over four pages, he was known to every pub or off-license, constable or court, and his rap sheet listed him as a vagabond, a rogue, and a scoundrel. In short, John Ritchie was dirt. One month after his release, John was living in a halfway house at 99 Church Hill in Walthamstow. 
a depressing little bedsit in a hostel crammed full of sex pests, druggies, and drunks. He had no job, no roots, no friends, and with those old familiar demons calling his name, he knew that he needed help. John would state, As I have no wish to spend the rest of my life in prison, I tried to do something constructive to effect a cure. I walked into St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. The best they could do for me was to see a psychiatrist next week. And seeing the seriousness of his sickness, I was recommended hospitalisation. A possible cure for his illness was in sight. I was fixed an appointment for the 9th of February 1965, and in the interval, I truly tried to do without alcohol. But the compulsion was too strong, as it's easier to stay sober on a ward, but almost impossible when you're stuck inside a dingy, depressing bedsit. On Wednesday the 27th of January 1965, he contacted the probation service who tried to intervene, as seeing his pain and desperation to get clean, they knew that if he got back on the booze, he would go back to prison. Somehow, it worked. That day, John received his confirmation. On Monday the 1st of February 1965, one week earlier, he would be committed to St. Bernard's Psychiatric Hospital to treat his alcoholism. This was John's moment to kick his addiction forever. All he had to do was to wait out the weekend without touching the booze. I was arrested that night for drink and bailed when sober. I failed to appear in court. I was arrested again and fined, arrested again and bailed out. And I carried on like this in an alcoholic haze. On Saturday the 30th of January 1965, at 10.45am, as John Ritchie played his mouth organ to soothe his pain, Beside the westbound Metropolitan Line tube. Having been drunk, tired and hungry for three days. Having sunk two bottles of wine, a quart of cider and a hip flask of whiskey that morning alone. He had no memory of how he got there. And having fallen off the wagon. He had lost his one shot at sobriety. And as every person passed him, no one had any idea about his past or his struggles. As to them, he was just a dirty drunk. Having been dragged by a baying mob to the station inspector's office at King's Cross, as five witnesses spoke of how he'd kicked Lawrence Gwither into the path of a moving train. It was the drink who spoke up for John Ritchie. This man tried to kill me. Yeah, I did it. And I'll f***ing do a proper job if I go down for this. I'll kill the c And with that, his fate was sealed. Taken to the Caledonian Road Police Station, he was charged with ABH was held at Brixton Prison. When his case was heard at Clerkenwell, the jury would learn every bad deed he had done, but not the context for his drinking and his aggression. Escalated to the Old Bailey, on the 11th of March 1965, John Ritchie was tried on the more serious charge of attempted murder, which, if found guilty, would warrant a life behind bars. 
Again, his history was ignored, and he was sentenced to five years for ABH. Hoping to hear of a sympathetic ear, he sent a handwritten letter to the Court of Appeal, imploring, I truly state that, although I was provoked into an assault, had I been in the right mind, reason would have controlled my impulsive emotions. That, at the time, through continual drinking, lack of food and sleep, I was in a poor state, both mentally and physically. Considering these facts, my lords, I consider the present sentence of five years is severe, and I appeal for leniency. His appeal was rejected, and he was sent to Wandsworth Prison. In March 1987, Lawrence Gwither died in Hendon at the age of 67. After his release, John Ritchie's whereabouts remain unknown. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That's better. Good. Done. Scrunching up my list of. Uh... <laughs> My, my list of what people's voices are going to be in that episode, because oh, when I realised there was lots of voices and I had to write down. And originally it was, John was going to be Scottish, because he comes from Scotland. Or Kai the New Haggis, things like that. And it's a, it's a voice I should be able to do, given the fact that I'm half Scottish. Uh, but I could, for some reason I couldn't do it today. And I struggled and struggled. Uh, and it just sounded really shit. Sometimes there's words that you say and it just sounds shit. You just say the words and it just goes, doesn't sound, doesn't, you're like, oh, okay, the new, yeah, fine, that's stereotypical Scottish. We, get away with that if, you, if you're in the 1980s and you want to wear one of those Jimmy wigs and things like that. But if you want to put it in a podcast and try and make it work, it's not going to work. So in the end, I came across, I, I, I came across, and because I'd already got one of the characters who was, who was a little bit Cockney, Lawrence, I'd put him as a little bit Cockney, I had to read, think of what John's voice was going to be in the end. I opted for, because he'd lived in London for quite a long time, I thought, you know what, let's put a, a little bit of a London twang on it. So there we go. So I made him a little bit South London, but not, but not extremely South London. So there we go. Oh, <coughs> how is everyone doing? Are we all good? Are we all well? I'm going to move my uh, my soundproofing thingy, hopefully without pulling out a, uh, the thingy. The thingy, this is all very technical, isn't it? Open a window. I might not make a cup of tea, although I might, I don't know. I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a real tears at the moment. Uh, as you can tell, I don't sound good. Not sounding good at all. So we can now play a game of does he have COVID or does he not have COVID? That's the thing. So 
I went out last week. Oh, well, sorry, to new people, welcome to Extra Mile. This is the unedited, unscripted bit. Uh, I keep forgetting to do this. Uh, we're going to do a little quiz in a bit. I'm going to give you loads of information about kind of uh, this case as well, but then we have a bit of a waffle at the start, and people enjoy the waffle, which is why I do it. So, yeah, COVID or not COVID? Uh, I've been being safe for two years. I'm fully vaccinated and fully boosted. I wear my mask. I isolate properly. I wash my hands properly unlike most people who can't be bothered because they think that the pandemic is over um i was invited out to a mate's do last week it was in a pub i was unsure they said don't worry it's fine we're in a separate room out back you can't get access to the room unless you're in the room there's only 10 of us there who you know and it was a big enough room that we could isolate properly so i thought yeah it's fine couple of days later i started feeling a bit rough did a test got a positive covid thing back my first ever possible uh, my first ever positive I messaged two friends who were there. Uh, they uh, reported positive as well. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. And then I was I was waiting and I was like, I've uh, been uh, kind of cold-like symptoms and a sore throat all week. And I was like, everyone, is this COVID or not? And they were like, oh, well, that's how it started for us. Like, I was like, because I don't have a fever. Uh, I just have a sore throat and a cold. So maybe it's just a cold because I haven't had a cold in a year. So maybe my body wants to have a cold or needs to have a cold. And it's summer as well. It's a change in seasons. This is when you kind of get colds anyway. Uh, and they went, oh, this is when it all kicks off. You're like, oh, you're going to get all shivery and you're going to get brain fog and you're going to get the massive headaches, which last for about a couple of days. And you're going to be knocked out for a couple of weeks. and It's going to be horrible. <sighs> nothing, nothing. This is it. I've, I've. I've 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 me lemsip every day and me Jakemans which have been great. Those little sweets that you can get the old fashioned sweets with the menthol inside, really good. They help me through the night. Uh, but all I've had is like a bit of a tickly throat and a bit of a chesty cough, and that's it. So I don't know if I've got COVID, and I would love to go into town um, and get one of those uh, tests. You know, you can get the. I'm sure everyone on here is going. Oh, get 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 your PCR test. Miss, you can order a PCR set test and it turns up at your house, doesn't it? I live on a boat that's floating around, which means my PCR test is going to turn up in Soho, which is where my PO box is, which is at least an hour's journey away. And uh, I can only get in there with my bike, which is currently smashed up still because of my accident. So, uh, yeah, so I, so I can't get a PCR test and I'm isolating for uh, 11 days. So I've still got a couple more days to go now. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I have COVID or not. It doesn't feel like it. If it is, it's own brand COVID. It's the cheapo shite. Uh, I hope it isn't. I think it's just a cold. It feels like a cold. I'm not... Like, even my SATs, like, I've got smartwatch, and I know they're not 100% accurate, but my my blood oxygen level's still good. I'm still... It, it dipped down to 96 very briefly, but it's still back up to 99, which is where it always is. So, uh, yeah... Uh, anyway, so that was exciting. So COVID or not COVID, I don't know. Uh, just want to say thank you to two new Patreon supporters who are uh, Darren Hambly uh, and Jason Owen. Thank you to both of you. I uh, hope you're getting all the new goodies. If you haven't subscribed to Patreon, there's lots of goodies in there. Obviously, I do the weekly video. I've started to make this the place where all of my secret... Um, uh, Murder Mile Minisodes, they go up there first and people seem to be enjoying that, so that's nice because it takes me bloody ages to make those uh, you also get all the crime scene photos uh, that I, 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 I don't share anywhere else so you get all the secret stuff to so even though it's only two two pounds a month, it's, it's, it's a bargain and what can you buy for two pounds in this era? You can't even buy like half a coffee or you're lucky, you're almost lucky in London if you could buy uh uh, one of these uh, 500ml Diet Cokes. Because this one... Oh, actually, well, full-fat Coke now, because the the sugar tax has gone... That's gone up to a ridiculous amount. Even though I wouldn't drink that, because it's just too much sugar. Anyway, <laughs> let's do some quiz questions. Um, don't forget, as always, I might probably balls these up. You might have noticed with last week's episode, some questions you couldn't answer. That's because I edited them out of, the, out of the episode. But I don't edit extra mile, so I'm not going to go back in and edit these out of the extra mile because it's, it's not worth the time I, don't, I just put a caveat in there I, I'm yet to edit this episode which means things may go missing right questions uh, question number one what was John described as in court there were three words that they used to describe him what were they question number two which everything's in threes today which three physical items not money do we know that John stole in the first of his criminal charges so three specific items. 
one of them makes sense the other two are a little bit weird um question number three what was what was john's first job question number four which army did he serve in question five which part of london was his hostel in pcag i wonder if he went to the hostel little joke for you there i bet he did uh, question number six uh who was the pc who arrested john so who was the police constable who arrested john uh, question seven who uh, where was the train heading to that day so the train that hit lawrence where was it heading to question eight this is a hard one i think uh, ooh, uh, uh what was the number of the train question nine how many cars slash carriages did the train comprise of and question 10 how many volts were in the electrified track oh got burpees so let's let's have a look <coughs> oh dear amazing i made it through that record without coughing there was some coughing and some burping as well because i'm on diet coke and you shouldn't really record a podcast on diet coke because it makes you very burpy um so yeah as we know he was conscripted uh, august 1939 to the start of uh, world war ii i can't say which army because that's one of the questions he was a rifleman um uh he seemed to be doing relatively well until kind of uh for the first two years i say relatively well he seemed to he'd already started drinking by that point but as mentioned he was court-martialed twice for drunkenness and they say offenses of a military nature which i worked out was desertion when i looked into his his court record his uh uh medical military record uh his first offense he was sentenced to 168 days and then uh, which is roughly five and a bit months and then nine months for uh, detention after that uh which meant uh but because he'd already i'm going to go through all of his offenses now because obviously in this story i skipped a lot of them just because what you don't want is he did this he did that he did that <laughs> i mean <coughs> <coughs> uh covid ah but uh but was it was it um so let's have a look at his, his criminal history um 4th of february 1941 he was charged with robbery at the central criminal court so that's the old bailey he was fined five pounds uh and bound over for three years uh for receipt for receiving a stolen identity card don't worry that is not one of the answers to the questions because i didn't read that out in the episode um after that uh he he was in southwold in suffolk so he'd gone to london then he moved to southwold uh, where he served uh, six months and three months hard labor for stealing from a shop um then after that may 1947 at greenock so that's northwest of glasgow so you can see that he very much is a drifter you can learn more he tells little about his life but you can learn a lot about his life by his criminal record he served six months in prison for theft uh for housebreaking for stealing jewelry and money don't worry that's not part of the quiz question i didn't put it in the episode uh, 18th of march 1946 at marleybone so back in london three months for stealing 29 shillings from a house Again, with the quiz question, I said not include money. 13th of March, 1948, at Clerkenwell. Seven days in prison for stealing. And they're the two things that you need to find. Uh, 6th of August, 1949, at Glasgow Sheriff's Office. So he's back up in Glasgow now. 90 days in prison uh, for theft, failing to stop after an accident, dangerous driving, driving while drunk, no license and no insurance uh october 1949 three months in glasgow again for attempted theft we don't know what for uh may 1950 five pound fine at bow streets so back in london for the assault of no policeman 30th of june 1950 bow street again six months in prison for driving disqualified for, he's, he's he's been disqualified from driving for five years 40 shilling fine apparently he took a vehicle without consent i.e theft of a motor vehicle drunk and dangerous driving uh and then that's when he tries to get himself back on track he's released from prison he he wants to stop drinking he gets a job at messrs cowan de groot and uh babcox and wilcox they, these are all over in hoban area uh so he's a packer and a machine operator uh and he seems to be doing that for like a year and a half he's doing all right he's kind of on track but then now everything starts going downhill again 
30th of April 1952, County of London Sessions, £10 fine, disqualified for driving for one year, which is ironic because he's already been disqualified for five years. Uh, and that was only that was only in 1950. I, I love it when you see these, uh, when, the, when the courts have to go through this process and they go, well, we have to charge you with this. Even though it's like, it's like when a child is 14 years old and he steals a car and crashes it and they disqualify him for two years and you go, but he's, but he's 14 now. And then you're disqualifying him until he gets to 16. And then only then can he legally drive a car. And he's a little shit anyway. He's not going to abide by your rules, but they have to tick the boxes, don't they? They have to go, well, we have to charge you with this and it's like oh you bullshit um 22nd to july 1952 so thames magistrates court who's so back in london two years probation they were trying to play lenient with him on this time conditional uh for six months uh and he's uh, as he was gonna spend six months at long grove mental hospital uh, originally his charge for that was just tampering with a car but they decided by this month because he was a, a a drunk and lots of drink driving they need to sort out his drinking it seemed to work he was there for about six months that's when he got a job as a handyman uh back over at holborn viaduct he seems to congregate back to holborn uh holborn is kind of uh just outside covent garden so it's just we've covered a little bit of holborn before but it is just slightly out um uh, March 1953, County of London, again, nine months in prison, disqualified from driving for 10 years. This is ironic because he's already been disqualified for five years and one year, and this was only about three or four years ago. For car theft, dangerous driving, and breach of probation. Mm, I wonder if he'll consider the fact that he's been disqualified from driving for 10 years, and he won't for another 10 years. I doubt it. Uh, he got a job uh, as a packer at Bung Brothers. What a name. E9, so it's over in the East End. Um, he did that for a couple of months with his work record it's getting less and less and less every time it starts off with like six months it starts off with a couple of years then it's a couple of months then it gets down to weeks in some cases days um, May 1954 he was sent off for inverted commas corrective training uh, following a dangerous drink driving oh there we go again drink driving um, and he was there and he then he got a job as a packer at the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents, which is kind of ironic given the fact that he was uh, done for drink driving. Uh, after that, he came out. He managed to get a job at, again as a packer at Angel and Son in Stepney. Unfortunately, he was only there for barely a month. After that, more criminal convictions. Bow Street for begging. Uh, back at Bow Street in early 57, a month in prison. Suspected of loitering with intent and to commit a felony. Um, November 1957, Bow Street, three months served for begging in a public place and assault on a police officer, again. Uh, 5th of March 1958, County of London, four months in prison, loitering with intent and begging. And on his uh, criminal sheet, they they regard him as an incorrigible rogue and a vagabond. This is listed on his, on his criminal record. Uh, and he also served another day in February 1958 at Clerkenwell for begging. <clears throat> as one day's detention so he was just in a, a police cell on that day uh work wise he attempted again at this point 1958 to get himself clean he got a job as a packer at sweet and maxwell in october 1958 but that was just three weeks the following summer that was his final job as a kitchen hand at the haven hotel in margate that was his last ever job and he lasted for what appears to be one season so the, the summer uh september 1959 that was the end of it he was uh, occasionally odd jobs here and there but none that were ever listed he's living off national assistance he's unemployed he, he gets uh, £4.17 shillings per week on benefits and, and his uh, job description he, he's actually described on it as an alcoholic so they don't list him as having a job after that again just more criminal records December 1959 at Stratford so East London fine 20 quid and two months in prison and had to pay £5.50 and 50, 50 pence costs uh, suspected of loitering with intent April 60 Bournemouth on the south coast fined £3 for stealing a library book 11th of April 60 again Bournemouth seven days for begging again uh, in May Bournemouth one month for begging June 1960 over at Torquay so he's moved to the south coast but the southwest now seven months uh, consecutively for assault on another policeman drunk and disorderly um, 
December, back in London, nine months in prison, again listed as an incorrigible rogue suspected of loitering with intent to steal cars. Um, June 1961, it goes on. Brighton, uh, seven months consecutively for drunken disorder and assault on a policeman. Another one. Uh, Clerkenwell, April 62, two months, one pound, a three pound bail for begging and drunk. Uh, September 62, another day in prison for begging, again described as an incorrigible rogue. I've just re- um, That's fine. Uh, 18th of February, oh, my birthday. Uh, 1963, not my birthday. Lambus Magistrates Court, so South London. Six months in prison for stealing a chicken and one piece of meat from a shop worth 15 shillings and one pence. What a lovely detail. Uh, 11th of July, 1963, Exeter. So again, he's moved, fined £3 uh, for being drunk and incapable. And then his final one, 17th of September 1963, two years in prison at Devon uh, for housebreaking and stealing. Five cases of that. And he was released 11th of December 1964. So that is six weeks before he was arrested for the attempted murder of Lawrence Squither. Um, I'll read you his letter of appeal. I won't do it in a voice, I'll just do it. This is his exact words. So, my lords, I have no wish to minimise the charges against me. It was a wrong and foolish act to commit. I am sincerely sorry that it, it occurred at all. However, I feel that my case was badly defended and that the court has not been informed of my actual physical state at the time or my history of alcoholism. All of my past convictions have been caused through drink or by means of drink. Since I was last released from prison on the 11th of December 1964, where I tried unsuccessfully to get treatment for this affliction, I started to drink heavy again. As I have no wish to spend the rest of my life in and out of prison, I tried to do something constructive in effecting a cure. I walked into St Mary's Hospital in Paddington, seeking help. The best they could do for me was to offer an appointment the following week at the psychiatric department. I attended and after the interview was recommended hospitalisation. A further appointment was fixed for the 9th of February with a view to being admitted to St Bernard's. In uh, in the interval, I, I truly tried to do without alcohol, but the compulsion was too strong. I sought help and advice where I could. A Mr Smith of City Road... Um, that was one of the alcohol advisory councils that he was going to, I was very helpful and understanding. Uh, I tried the probation service on Borough High Street and in desperation Mr Sweeney of Bow Street, uh, Bow Street Probation Officer was amazed that I could not be admitted immediately. He asked me to try and stick it out until the Monday, it being Friday I think, until I he saw what could be done. So he was the guy who actually called them up and was like, hey, you need to get, get this guy an ASAP, not wait. Uh, I was amazed, uh, I was amazed, oh sorry, I was arrested that night for drink and bailed out when sober. I failed to appear in court, I was arrested again and fined, which I still owe. I was arrested again, bailed out when sober. These arrests were made at different stations. And so I carried on in an alcoholic haze until I was arrested on the 30th of January on this charge. I truly state that although I was provoked into this assault, I had been... Had I been of the right mind, reason would have controlled impulsive emotions. And at that time, through continual drinking, lack of food and sleep, I was in a poor state both mentally and physically. (coughs) Considering these facts, my lords, I consider the present sentence of five years is severe and appeal for leniency. John Ritchie. So there we go. There's that. Um... I might do. I might do a little bit of uh, Lawrence's statements. I, I do. Originally, when I was writing this, I started using Lawrence's statements, and then I decided that by using his statements too early in the episode, it gives away the the idea that he survives. So I wanted you to think that he was going to get murdered and killed, but he doesn't. He survives. So I ended up not using his statements as much as I wanted to. But his were. Uh, I thought that was a policeman walking past that. It's just someone who looks almost like a policeman. Um, uh, Lawrence would state, I noticed a man in the tunnel leading to the entrance. He was playing a mouth organ. As I waited on the platform for my train, um, I was, uh, as I was waiting, the man came onto the platform and went up to two young men sitting on a seat and one of them gave him a penny. 
that man kept holding out his hand for the money and I said to him, don't do that, mate, that's begging. I also told him that he should place a cap on the ground for money to put it in. I was waiting for the next train near the tunnel, uh, which the train would have come out to enter the platform. I was standing about three feet away from the edge of the platform when I felt a blow in the pit of my back, and this happened just as the train came out of the tunnel. I fell forward and managed to turn. At the same time, I hit the side of the train. The two carriages passed me uh, when I fell. My right-hand side of my body hit the side of the carriage, and my hand also. I don't know what happened next, but when I gathered my sentences, I noticed that the man who had been playing the mouth organ was standing at the back of the platform, immediately behind me when I was pushed. I went back to this man, and another man came up and said that he had seen what had happened. The driver of the train came up, and as did some other officials. Uh, we were all then taken to an office, and the police were sent for. The injuries caused by hitting the train are worse on my right hand. The small finger on my hand uh, has a cut on the back the nail is torn and the palm appears to be bruised I understand that this man suggested that the reason he did this to me was because I indecently assaulted him by touching his private parts who were this I stoutly deny all that took place prior to this incident is exactly what I have described which is what everyone else describes as well there you go there you go I'll tell you what, I'll do some of the questions. Uh... <coughs> oh, coffee, McCough face. Right, let's do the questions and then I can have a good cough afterwards. Oh, I haven't got a cake or anything. I'm still on my diet, still being good. Um, haven't broken. Can't get rid of the final final bit. It's, that, it's the last bit now. The last bit of flab. And it's the bit that won't shift. Bastard. Anyway, right, quiz questions. Question number one. How was John described in court? Three words there. I gave you uh, one of them briefly in there. He was described as a scoundrel, a rogue and a vagabond. Uh, question two. Which three items, not money, do we know that he f he stole in his first criminal charges? They were cigarettes, an egg cup and a gravy boat. All the essentials. Question number three. What was John's first job? He was a newspaper boy. Question four. Which army did he serve in? It was the Cameroonian Rifles. Question five. Which part of London was his ho hostel in? It was uh, Walthamstow. Question six. Who was the PC who arrested John? His name was PC Dugdale. Question seven: Where was the train heading to? It was the Hammer. It was going to Hammersmith. Uh, question eight: Hard one. Uh, what was the name of the train? It was a. It was the one eight four. How many car? Oh, question nine: How many cars or carriages did the train comprise of? It was six. And how many volts? were in the electrical in the electric track it was 630 so there you go there you go that's that done oh i'm i'm looking forward to having my new my jakemans now they're really they really have been a, a benefit they're very good though you get you get like 15 20 in a pack or whatever and they're just those old style i think in the old days they would have been made with tar or some shit like that but now it's just like it's like a what's in them it's like a it's an old-fashioned menthol sweet the original and famous throat and chest soothing menthol sweets there we go made made of the finest ingredients uh what, what are they made of glucose syrup sugar menthol aniseed oil eucalyptus uh and some color there we go all good but it does the trick it gets me through the night right that's me done hope you enjoyed that hopefully i'll be less croaky next week uh oh and just to say i have i have my new videos coming out every week so uh if you if you want to you can go to the youtube channel there's lots of old videos on there new videos and hopefully something exciting coming this autumn oh exciting so have yourself a good week thank you for supporting the show <laughs> stay safe stay healthy be good everyone bye
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.